0: You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. been kind of really learning these last uh, several weeks that there was really something very magnetic, something that was very attractive and and winsome about the early new testament church and we 've kind of been looking at these last few weeks that there were certain qualities the early church had which kind of drew an unbelieving uh, people into their doors in mass and so far we kind of identified over these last three weeks. Three of what we've identified as those powerful magnets. The first magnet we looked at was what we called crazy love. And Jesus said that people would be drawn to a church where they saw the people in the church loving one another the way God the Father loved Jesus and the way Jesus loved us. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said in John 13, 34, he said, even as I have loved you, that you also would love one another. Jesus became the example of what it meant to, and what it looked like to love one another. And again, when an unbelieving world sees that kind of love, we're gonna be drawn, they're gonna be drawn towards Jesus and the Christian faith. The second magnet was what we kind of called straight talk. And we saw how it was the prioritizing of the preaching, the teaching of God's word, the the communication of relevant life-changing truths which drew and transformed a world hungry toward a spirit-filled, faith-filled walk. The third magnet we looked at last week was what we called open hands. And there we saw that the early church uh, had a culture of extravagant giving, even in places of extreme poverty. We looked at one church, the church in Macedonia, that was a church that was very, very poverty-stricken, but yet its people were very generous in their giving. It's interesting, several people walked up to me last Sunday after the sermon and said, that was a great sermon on tithing. I said, if that's what you heard, you didn't hear what I said. The Macedonian church was not just a tithing church, they were a church that not only tithed but went way beyond the tithe to what we would call sacrificial giving. Uh, Again, there was just a generosity about that church that Paul used as an example to other churches of how to be. Today we're gonna come to the last magnetic force the church possessed and I believe it was not only the greatest magnet of all, but it is the magnet that really holds All of the other magnets together and it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the most magnetic personality who ever lived. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that Jesus even refers to himself in very magnetic terms. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 12 verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw. That's what a magnet does. A magnet draws. Jesus said, I will draw all people to myself. Now there Jesus was making a reference to his crucifixion, to his being lifted up on the cross. He's also making reference to his resurrection, to his being lifted up out of the grave. And Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people from every color, every tribe, every nation, every language, Jew and Gentiles, unto myself. The most powerful known magnetic object in all the universe is known as the magnetar. And the magnetar is a magnetic neutron. And it is so powerful and it has such a magnetic force that it can slow a locomotive from a quarter of a million miles away. It has tremendous magnetic force, as a matter of fact, 100 100 billion times the magnetic field of Earth. This is a very powerful magnet. And despite how powerful the magnetar may be, there is a far greater force at work in the universe today. From the very beginning of the early New Testament church, it was not its doctrine. It was not its devotion, it was not its dedication that drew people to the church. It was Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, crucified and resurrected, that drew the people to the church. Jesus Christ is and continues to be the greatest magnetic force at work in the world. It's interesting in Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples both how and why he alone would be the greatest magnetic force in the world. And there Jesus explains to the church, not just to the first century, but to every century, three of the most important things we need to do with Jesus in order to ensure that we are not just a true church, but that we are a magnetic church. The first thing is we need to clarify what we think about Jesus. Now keep in mind that up to this point, up to Matthew 16, Jesus had never used the term church. The disciples, they had never even heard that word before. They didn't even know what a church was. And again, keep this in mind as you listen to a question Jesus asked his disciples. It was about his public opinion poll. In verse 13, it says when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's interesting, some things just never change, do they? As you can imagine, just as today, there are all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is just like there were over 2,000 years ago. And there we see that the disciples are saying, well, some say you're just a great preacher like John the Baptist. There were others who said, you know, you're just kind of a great person like Elijah. Some others said, you know, Jesus, people kind of see you, and, and they're reminded of the prophet Jeremiah. And again, today, you hear the same opinions, even in our secular culture. Jesus is a great teacher Some will say Jesus was a great humanitarian. He was a great example for all mankind. And the good news is most everyone thinks Jesus was someone very special. And practically every opinion about Jesus is a favorable one. Not all, but most. Most secular people would think that they have a pretty balanced position on Jesus. Most people believe that he existed... Most people believe that he was a Galilean Jew who lived and taught wonderful doctrines, told marvelous stories during the first century. Most everybody believes that at some point he died, he was martyred for his teachings, that his teachings were very influential and life-altering. And again, if you would take that and and, and add add all of these things together... I would tell you that they are completely inadequate to who Jesus was, to who he claimed to be, and I believe Jesus himself would find most of that to be totally unsatisfactory. As a matter of fact, Jesus doesn't even really leave us any of those choices. I love how C.S. Lewis kind of explains this, and he says, I am here I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus is a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil in hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a spool. you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense of his being a great human teacher. Jesus has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. One of the challenges, again, of the early New Testament church was this challenge of clearly conveying who Jesus was and is. And I believe the same challenge remains for the church today. I believe as a church, we must always seek to clarify and express what we believe about who Jesus Christ is. We must never let anyone walk out of these doors without knowing what we believe about Jesus And who Jesus claimed to be. He is God in human flesh. Second, we need to testify to what we believe about Jesus. Just as in those days and just as in today, there's no shortage of theories about who Jesus was. But there is a tremendous gap between who people thought he was and who Jesus knew he was. Now it's interesting after having spent three years with these 12 disciples, three years where these disciples could watch him, study him, listen to him, and spend time with him. He puts them on the spot and in effect says, the final exam is here and there is only one question. And this, there's probably just this dramatic pause. And then Jesus puts forth this question in verse 15, but what about you? He asked those disciples, who do you say I am? Now the you in that sentence, it's plural. He wasn't just talking to one of them, he was talking to all of them. He's talking to all of us. In essence, Jesus was saying those, to those disciples, you've all been in my class. You haven't missed a day. You've had three years to think and study on this. Now, who do you say I am? And like a lot of politicians, Jesus couldn't care less about public opinion, much less polls or pundits. What Jesus looks for, what Jesus is after, what Jesus cares about is personal conviction. It is the single most important question Jesus could ever ask. And I will tell you, it is the single most important question you could ever be asked about Jesus, and it is the single most important answer you will ever give. Who do you say Jesus is? To paraphrase the great Winston Churchill, he would have said this about Peter at this very moment. He would have said this was his finest hour. It's true. The group... As Jesus posed that question, they're probably stammering, squirming, looking at the ground, drawing circles in the dirt with their feet, until finally Peter, who was never at a loss for words, stepped up and said this in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let me tell you, that's a simple response, but it covers all the bases. Peter calls Jesus the Christ and this comes from that Greek word Christos which is a translation of the Hebrew word where we get that word Messiah and both of those words mean anointed one. Now, it's interesting in, in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, whenever a person was going to be specifically recognized for something he did, maybe it was his valor on the battlefield or, or his victory in a great war, there would be this ceremony in which a, a small amount of oil would be poured over their head. It was a way that they would recognize and anoint a leader. And in Israel, to be the Lord's anointed was to be the king. So again, this is a breathtaking, this is an astonishing uh, statement coming from this Jewish disciple, Peter. What Peter is saying, I- I'm recognizing you're not just a prophet. You are the one the prophets prophesied concerning. You, Jesus, you're the one we have been waiting for. You are the Messiah of our nation. Now again, Peter did not have a full understanding of what kind of Messiah Jesus was. Peter, along with many of the other disciples, he's thinking more politically than he was spiritually. But regardless, he said unequivocally in that statement... Peter is saying the wait is over, our hope has been fulfilled, the prophecy has been kept, and the dream has come true. But it's interesting, Peter is not finished. He goes on in verse 16 to call Jesus the son of the living God. Now in the Hebrew way of thinking back in those days, to be a son meant you shared the father's qualities and all of his power and all of his privileges.